Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you this night and ask your blessings upon each part of this service. We ask that you would work and be honored and glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and we'll open to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. And as we are studying theology, we are moving from the study of God, theology proper, the study of the Son, Christology, the study of the Spirit, pneumatology to the doctrine of salvation. And if you like the big words, that's pronounced soteriology. And of course, we had a lot of fun mispronouncing that word just a little bit because the teacher of the class was Dr. Terry. And so it was so Terryology. And uh, he did not appreciate that very much uh, because he was not telling us what he believed. He was telling us what the Bible taught about salvation. It was a really one of, one of my favorite classes in all four years uh, of Bible college. And, of course, we're not going to spend uh, a whole semester. That was three hours a week for 18 weeks on this one subject. Uh, though we could, and uh, still not cover everything. Um, But when we talk about salvation, uh, the first thing is we need to set up a little groundwork. We need to understand what salvation is, what salvation is not, why man has to be saved, and not everything is in your outline here, but... The simple truth is, man has to be saved. Where did we start? Okay, if, if we want to just talk about salvation as uh, a, a specific term, as a word of what it means, uh, it means that there was a point in your life when you were not in danger, and now you are, and someone... Or something takes you out of danger. I mean, as simple as you can put it, that's what being saved is. Uh, I won't for, probably won't forget it as long as God allows me to have a memory. But I remember uh, knocking on doors for a church in Florida many years ago, traveling with Brother Clayton. And a and, uh, man says, uh, I said, have you ever been saved? And he said, I most certainly have. He says, we were out here in Tampa Bay, just out in the water swimming, and I was drowning, and I got saved. And I said, well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you're still here. But I'm talking about salvation that God gives. He says, yes, that's happened to me right then. Uh, He said, God saved me for a purpose. I said, well, God didn't reach down out of heaven and pull you out of the water, did he? He said, no, there was somebody there that did it, but God used them, and that's how I got saved. And I I could not witness to him about biblical salvation, because once he was out of trouble there, he was not in danger, got into danger. He was drowning there in the water, and he got saved, and he said, that's good enough for me. I'm not worried about it. I, I would hope there'd be no one in this room like that. Amen. Uh, that we would understand that salvation is just a little more than the removing of physical danger. 
So we're going to just take that idea, salvation, and of not being in trouble, being in trouble, getting out of trouble, and, and apply it to the Scripture. That's why we come back to uh, Genesis chapter 1. You see, God doesn't need to be saved because He can't get into trouble. Amen? He is the one that does the saving. And the Bible was written from God to mankind. And so we start with who man is. And if you uh, uh, want to apply this, this is overlapping anthropology, the study of man. But uh, we're just going to believe what the Bible says. Verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after Our likeness. Now, this is one of the reasons why we use the King James Bible. Um, If if you were turning in this sentence to your teacher in grammar school or in English class, you would probably get marked incorrect. Why? Because we have a single subject and we have plural pronouns. How many of you knew that's where we were going before we started? By the way, why do we have a single subject and plural pronouns in this verse? Was it because the translators just got mixed up? They were tired that day? No, it was because the Hebrew text from which our Bible was translated demands plural pronouns. Uh, the Hebrew word is Elohim. Now, if you, I don't read Hebrew. Maybe one of these days, the, now that the building's finished, I'll get back to school and, and learn all those wonderful things. But I want you to understand, you don't have to read Hebrew to understand this. If you can read English, you get it. See, im is plural. The pronouns are plural. Now, when they translated the word, they translated the word God because it's singular, because it's talking about the God of the Bible. It's not talking of one of many. It's talking about God. The pronoun is plural because God has revealed himself to us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If we're going to reflect the image of God, there's got to be more than just the body. Aren't you glad we're not like the dogs? Now, I know that people do an awful lot. They try. Work very diligently to prove the evolutionist right by acting like animals. Isn't that true? I mean, evolution doesn't go forward. We didn't get better. It actually goes backward. We start mimicking the animals from which they said we came Uh, That doesn't prove anything except your parents weren't watching. Amen? That's the only thing that that proves. 
Uh, the simple truth is we were created in the image of God. God is not tall. God is not short. God is not fat. He is not skinny. God is not white. He is not black. Uh, what was that? Sorry, Calypso Louis and uh, Nation of Islam. God is not black. It's just not there. If you ever run into any of those guys on the streets of Manhattan, do yourself a favor. Stay away. They are some of the most violent people you will ever meet in this world. Um, God is create, created man in his image. And if we were to take uh, the extremes... Uh, of the human genome. Uh, we might go to the little pygmies in Africa standing about four foot tall. And yet we have what we call uh, uh, dwarfs and midgets that aren't, aren't a part of that people group that are very, very short. I think the record is what, like 21 inches tall or 22 inches tall for an adult? Uh, which is tabletop. And then, uh, uh, well, if you look in the Guinness World Book of Records, it is Goliath at nine foot six inches tall. Uh, uh, that is uh, pretty big for a human being. And uh, so we can go from 21 inches to uh, nine foot six. Guess what? Still all men and women. We're all human beings. It's amazing even evolution has had to back up and said there was only one common ancestor for mankind. They're eventually going to get to the Bible. They have to if they believe the truth. Uh, of course, they don't believe the truth. They're never going to go there, but they come awful close. The modern evolutionist today believes that there was a common ancestor for the human race. Uh, and they believe in what we call truncated or... Um, uh, I can't think of the actual term right now, but it is... Uh, evolution that happens, a whole bunch of mutations happen all at the same time. Now, you know how close that is to creation? God said it, and there was man. God said it, and there was a rabbit, and uh, all the other different animals that were there. Uh, uh, we, we believe that God spoke and it became. And the scientists are being disproven at every point. And so what they're saying is, well, something happened. And all of these things happened at the same time. And, of course, we know that something did happen. And everything happened at the same time. And God made man in his own image. We believe in the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God. We believe in a triune man. We believe in a body. We believe in a soul. And we believe in a spirit. 
Now, every once in a while, you'll run into somebody, and they'll say, I'm not a trichotomist. I'm a dichotomist. Now, what that simply means is, I don't believe man ever had a spirit. And we would say, if you really want to just yank their chain, we'd say, we believe in both. You see, we believe man was created in three parts, a body, a soul, and a spirit. But when he sinned, his spirit died, and now we believe that man is dichotomous. And then they're really going to get upset at you because they'll think you're making fun of them. But the Bible tells us we're created in God's image, and I challenge you to find some other way that mankind was created in God's image. God revealed himself and a triune God. He created us in his image, body, soul, and spirit. That spirit died when we sinned. We don't have time to go through the whole scope of dispensationalism, but we will as we go through our series in, in theology, because that's part of it. It's how we approach the Bible, how we keep things separate, and how we study the Scriptures. And man sinned. He was not in trouble when he was created. Man was created in the image of God. We go through Genesis 2 and we find out that God created woman and he put them together in the garden And we do not know how long they lived in the garden between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And, of course, some smart apple came along and he says, Well, you see, that's how we account for the difference between 4,000 years of history as recorded in the Bible and 4.5 billion years of history as recorded by the evolutionist. And here's what... I'd like you to understand is we are not in the business of accommodating false science or science falsely so-called. If you ever want to study something that will really confuse you, study the dating methods that these archaeologists and paleontologists use to try to put evolution in order. It's absolutely hilarious. They'll take a rock and they'll break it up and they'll put it through different tests trying to find out how old the rock is. Well, guess what? They will get different results for different parts of the same rock. So how do you know which ones are right? Well, it's the ones that fit what you're trying to prove. That's how it works. The oldest fossil fragment that could be identified with human is just a little tip of an elbow. They originally dated it at like four... uh, some, uh, it was a, uh, a very, very old date. 
until an anthropologist came by and says, let me see that old human fossil. He said, something's wrong with your dating. This is a perfectly modern man elbow. It can't be that old. Oh, well, let's go back. And they redated it, of course. Now, I'm not trying to be too political here, but I'm almost wondering if our people at the budget office haven't been taking lessons in evolutionary dating. Uh, because they seem to do that with the budget numbers. And, and they can just go back and revise and fix them. And you say, the economy's doing great. And then the next report is, well, the economy wasn't doing as great as we thought it was. We've revised it downward. And then the poll numbers go down. Well, we're going to revise it back upwards. You know, it was kind of like trying to find information that fits my scenario. So what we have is God gave them commandments. They were to dress and keep the garden. They were not to eat of the tree. They ate of the tree. They sinned. They died. And now man is in trouble. Man is no longer in the image of God. How many of you have been through discipleship and Genesis chapter 5? How many of you have been through that? Raise your hands. How many have not? Okay, let's take just a minute and do that quickly. Go with me to Genesis chapter 5. And let's just read verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Okay, this is the, the testimony. This is the record of the life and the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Now something happened between Genesis 5.1 and Genesis 5.3. Genesis 5.1, it says here that Adam was created in the image of God, that Adam and Eve were created together, that God called their name Adam in the day that he created them. And then he says, Adam lived 130 years and had a son named Seth. Now, who knows what happened between, uh, during that 130 years before Seth showed up? Well, a fellow named Cain showed up. And another one named Abel showed up. And, so, excuse me, and something happened before Cain and Abel showed up. A snake showed up. And they ate of a tree and they were removed from the garden. And when Seth was born, how does it describe Seth? It says, And Adam begat a son in his own likeness. Now, if Adam was exactly the same as he was on the day of creation... Why does it say that his son Seth was born in Adam's likeness? You see, something did happen. Adam wasn't the same. He died. 
Mankind was now being born dead. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. That's Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. So, we find that sin came into the world. Most of us know the verse. There is none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And death has passed upon all men for that all have what? Sin. David in Psalm 51, his great psalm of repentance, we believe was written after his repentance of his sin with Bathsheba, said that I was conceived uh, uh, in, in iniquity. Oh, let's read the verse. For some reason it's just not coming to mind like it ought to. Psalm 51, in verse 5, it says, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It was David saying that he was born out of a sinful relationship? Absolutely not. What he said was, what he was saying was, I was born in the likeness of Adam. I was born a sinner. And, of course, David confirmed that birth by wrong choices during his life. And that's why we are in danger. By the way, uh, we have this idea that big sinners are in more danger than little sinners are. Is that true? No. We're all in danger. We're all in the same danger. The danger is being eternally separated from God. And someone has to ask the question, well, well, isn't God just? Is He going to give me the same punishment that He gives Adolf Hitler? I want you to understand something. Hell is still hell. No matter what part of it you end up in, uh, you don't want to go there. There is not the party section in hell. Everyone is going to suffer. But God has said in His Word, and we'll not take time to go chasing all of this tonight, but God will is just in His judgment. But to be eternally separated from God is enough, is it not? It is not something that we want. And so, we were born sinners. We have chosen sin. We are in trouble. And 
And you can read your Bible, you can study it, you can scour it from cover to cover, you can uh, look wherever you want to look in your Bible. And you will find only one truth that is there. You have this life in which you are living to make your decision. Once you pass from this life into the next, there is no second chance. It is finished. You must make the decision in this life. The thing that never ceases to astound me is they've made all these movies about the uh, return of the Lord and, and the star of the movie starts out being a skeptic, not believing in God, and then the Antichrist shows up and they all start going, wow, it's happening just like the Bible said. I want to challenge you, that's not how the Bible said it was going to be. Here's what the Bible says. It says, they will believe the lie. You know who's going to be first in line to serve the Antichrist? All those that have rejected the gospel before he shows up. Because they're going to believe in him. You know what the Bible said? The Bible said if it were possible, the Antichrist would deceive God's own elect. That's how good an imitation he is going to be. And that's why I kind of pass it off a little tongue-in-cheek. People will say... You know, Bill Clinton was, is going to be the Antichrist. Is, is there anybody that would ever confuse Bill Clinton with Jesus? I mean, you, I mean, come on. Uh, somebody said it's going to be Obama, and I'm sitting here going, you're, you're going to... I think we have a DNA problem. Uh, we did with Bill Clinton, too. Uh, no way. But I will tell you this. It, it is an interesting thought. That we could verify somebody's genetic history. Because we have the tomb of David outside the city of Jerusalem. We have the tomb of the high priest. There could be DNA comparison done if there's any remains that could be used. Interesting thought. But the simple truth of the matter is you have this life to make your decision. That's all the Bible tells us. That is what makes this doctrine so important. You see, man is a finite being, meaning that we have a beginning and we have an end. No one lives forever. But God has done the work. To save man. Tried to put it in here. God's justice and His holiness will not allow any excuses. Will not allow sin to be swept under the carpet. Doing the best you can is not good enough. God's holiness 
God's justice demands a payment and reparation. You know what? Somebody does something and you are seriously injured, they can give you money. But they can't bring your loved one back to life. Uh, they can give you money, but this, this idea is, with human beings, it is never, ever really made right. God says, listen, I will make it right. That's what salvation is, is making it right. Only God could do that. Only God could make a way that things that we have done wrong could be made totally right. And so we come here to understand a little bit about salvation. Number one, man cannot save himself. This would mean that man could pay for his own sins. The cross has become of none effect. There is not any necessity for God if man could pay for it. It would put a price tag on salvation. How many religions have tried to put a price tag on salvation? Not trying to just pick on the Catholic Church, but it's famous. When I was a Bible college student, one of my fellow students brought in a document. It was a plenary indulgence. It was signed by the Pope himself. I think the year was 1921. His grandfather had given what would then have been well over a million dollars to the Pope personally. He, he showed up to receive it, took it, and wrote on this document, put his name in there, this man and all of his children from henceforth and so on are free from all sins, Mortal, mortal and venial forever in their posterity because of the gift that this man gave. Now, we just got done saying that you can go to a court of law and you can get things, you can get a judgment against a person, but you know what? You can't take back the things that that person did. You can't bring that dead person back to life that was killed by the drunk driver. You, can't, you cannot make things right. And even someone who has injured you, you can forgive them if they've said and done mean and hurtful things to you. But you know, sometimes that pain just kind of stays there, doesn't it? Uh, that's why James says, do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't start it in the first place. But God gives us forgiveness, but man cannot save himself. But you know what? God will not save man without his willingness and surrender to obedience. The simplest example was that of Cain. God said, I won't accept your offering. What did the Bible say happened to Cain? He got poochy lip disease. He pouted. He was angry. His countenance fell. 
And God came to him and he said, listen, sin lieth at the door. He says, one of Abel's sheep is right there. All you got to do is go get one. If you will offer the right sacrifice, God said, you will be in charge and your brother will be seeking to you. You will be the leader as the oldest son of the family. But what did Cain do? He sought his own restoration and murdered Abel. And God judged him. We can... The teachings of Jesus in Luke 13, he says, Nay, but except ye repent. You know, there's something that you have to do. Now, in case you're wondering why we're dealing with this in such a simple way, is because the Calvinists have made this extremely complicated. They have come in to this very simple thing that God, man cannot save himself, and God will not save you without you going to God and surrendering and obeying God's Word. The, the Bible makes that those two points very simple. The Calvinist wants to muddy the water with the idea of election that God chose certain people to go to heaven and the rest of everybody to go to hell. Now... We're not going to spend time on the verses because right here, in Gen- by the time we get to Genesis chapter 4, if you cannot see that Calvinism is not in the Scriptures, otherwise you make God responsible for sin, And God, the master puppeteer, and all of us, the little puppets, playing out the script that he has written. Now, what kind of God would write murder into a script and force someone to murder his own brother just so that God could deal with the issue of murder? What kind of human being would you be judged if you tried to do the same thing? Hopefully, you go to prison for the rest of your life. Amen? And be removed from society as a large. And we're not going to do that to the God of the Bible. But that's what the Calvinist does. The Arminian comes in with the other extreme and it says everybody's saved. But if you choose not to be saved, well then God will honor your choice. Well, no. You can't save yourself. But God won't save you unless you ask Him to. You see, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and we know these verses, you should have them memorized. If you don't, you need to. And again, we're just beginning this study. We'll we'll talk about all of the big terms and the work, but it's, it's really very simple when we get these basic truths here. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, 
the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath what? Appeared to all men. How many of you know the next verse? Titus 2.12. Let's turn there for just a second. First, second Timothy, we get to Titus. It says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. How many of you can remember back before you were saved? Do you remember feeling guilty about your sin? Did you know that you had done things wrong? You know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit of God teaching you that you've got to come to God. you remember the first time somebody gave you a Bible? Maybe you just lived in wonderful, ignorant bliss until someone handed you a gospel track. And then all of a sudden, man, you found out you were in deep, deep trouble. Guess what? That's the Holy Spirit of God. That's God's grace. Could you imagine what this world would be like if no one ever felt remorse for their wicked behavior? You know what we'd have? We'd have a Hollywood movie. I mean, don't they create these villains that just sit there and go... Bang, bang, kill people, do have no they're like machines. In fact, they even made movies about machines killing people. And, and you're sitting there going, Where's all this coming from? Because I'll tell you, hurting another human being does affect you. And whether you believe it or not, the Holy Spirit of God is there Not Now, you can tell the Holy Spirit to be quiet. Some people do a pretty good job of that. And there'll come a time when the Holy Spirit won't bother you anymore. And you'll be free to do whatever you want to do. But the grace of God hath appeared unto all men. It's an amazing thing as you study mankind, and maybe we'll take a whole series on anthropology. But where did the tribal people, the aborigines, where did they learn about marriage? And why don't they have the problem we are facing today with trying to figure out whether marriage is only a traditional man and woman or, or whether it was an actual man and woman. It was a mandate given by God. You know, we have courts that aren't smart enough to figure that out today. They, they say that this whole man and woman thing is only a tradition. I'll tell you what, yesterday was 26 years of that tradition in my life and, and I'm thankful very much for it. But it's a little more than tradition. It's God's plan for the ages. Because no one went in. There were no American missionaries that went in and taught the aborigines about marriage before they showed up. And yet, where'd they get the idea? 
that a man ought to marry a woman if it's really the way everybody says it is. Why don't we have that going on all over the world? You know why? Because man was created in the image of God. And the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And that God's grace teaches us that wrong is wrong and that sin is sin. But here's what's missing. For by grace are ye saved through what? Faith. Faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You see, you have grace. You have all the grace you need to get saved right now. If you're, not, if you're here tonight and you're not saved, it's because of a faith issue. Well, how do you get the faith issue saved? Uh, settled so that you can be saved. Right here. That's how simple it is. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Well, I'm not going to read the Bible. I don't believe that's worth reading. Well, what have you just done? You've resisted God's grace, and you're not going to be saved until you surrender and you gain faith from God's Word. You see, we can talk about Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. Does anybody know what that is? That's just a big word for being saved by works. There's a guy named Pelagius. And he said, you're saved by doing good works. And uh, not again to pick only on the Roman Catholic Church. But the Roman Catholic Church has come up with a a stance in their theology that they are semi-Pelagian. Meaning that you are saved by God's grace and by your works. Uh, The Bible is anti-Pelagian. Meaning that you are saved by God's grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. The faith doesn't come from you. The faith comes from God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. But there is something you have to do. The Bible says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? That's a choice you have to make. Somebody said, well, I didn't believe enough. Oh, well, let's... The only way I know how to deal with that one is call it the sincerity game. How many of you remember back in school, you wrote these little notes? I like you. Do you like me? Circle one. Yes, no, or maybe. And it came back, no. And so you wrote another note saying, but I really, really, really like you. Don't you like me just a little bit? And the answer came back, No! Double no! Triple no! I hate you! By the way, who wrote this note? I mean, there's all kinds of things that go on. God doesn't want sincerity 
as much as he wants honesty. Amen? To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ means you don't believe in anything else. You reject your religion. You reject your church. You reject your baptism. You reject everything. Second Corinthians says that Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Jesus said, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. I mean, if you're going to get saved, you must repent. So well, I don't know if I was sorry enough for my sins. No, God wants you to allow some emotion in there. You ought to be sorry for your sins. But if you're not sorry enough to turn around, you're not sorry enough to repent. Amen? Well, what if I turn around and do it again? Welcome to the human race. But repentance is that act of turning to God. Uh, Romans 10.13 put it this way, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I've met so many people over the years say, Pastor, I do that every day. Uh, Wait a minute. That's not calling. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you believe He's going to do what He says. And you call upon Him once in faith, trusting that God will do what He said. That's calling on the name of the Lord. To repeat it. Is just like your mother did when you were told to clean your room. How many of you were told to clean the room and then didn't clean the room? And so mother had to call again and say, clean the room. And you didn't do it. And dad came home and he said, clean the room. And the room got cleaned. Amen? Listen, that's not how we treat God. He doesn't need to be reminded. He doesn't forget. He's not going to go back on His Word. And if you believe that about Him, you don't believe in God, the God of the Bible. The Bible says, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. Uh, I would hope that this is not new to any of us here tonight. But when we just take what the Bible says, all of a sudden the Calvinist doesn't make sense anymore. All of a sudden the person running around saying, well, God is a God of love and we're all going to go to heaven someday regardless, that doesn't make sense anymore. Well, you, you need to prove your sincerity by what you do. That doesn't make sense anymore. Because it is God that does the saving. All He wants you to do is honor His Word by believing it. Somebody put it this way. What is the distance between you and God? As a sinner... It is an impassable gulf. You can't get there. 
But if you'll turn around and take that first step toward God, He'll meet you right where you are. That's repentance. How many times do you have to repent in your life? You repent once to get saved. And then, once after every sin that you sin after you get saved. It's not the same thing. The first one is giving my life to Him as it is. The next one is because I've given my life to Him and I took part of it back. Does that make sense? To call. To know that God will honor His Word. To receive Him. To let God do it. You see, we see a work that has been done by God and is received by man. And then God changes the man. That's salvation. Guess what? He wasn't in trouble. Now he's in trouble. God will take you out of trouble. And by the way, you have to understand something. That when I choose to make no trouble between me and God, there's going to be trouble between me and those who hate God just going to happen. But if I had to make a choice of who I'm going to be in trouble with, I'm not asking for trouble, but let me tell you something. I don't want trouble with God. I want salvation. And we'll let the other people put up with whatever they have to put up with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this night. We thank you for your love and your mercy to us. Lord, I know that most each one of us, most everyone here knows these things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand and to walk in the light of your word. And to enjoy the blessings that are upon us because of your goodness and your love. Lord, I pray that we would not be deceived by the wiles of Calvinism or Arminianism or Plagianism or any of the other isms and schisms that are out there. But Lord, with a simple childlike faith, we would accept your grace and be brought into your family through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. We ask you to work. In Jesus' name we pray. We'll just keep our heads bowed for a moment.